Father, speak through my weak and foolish words that we might hear words of peace. Amen. We've come to remember. In a few minutes, we're going to have our two-minute silence. Two minutes, and I'm quoting from a series of exceptional short articles about remembrance written by uh, Captain John Foreman, our British defence attaché, um, and I would suggest that you might ask him to see a copy of them. Um, uh, two minutes that we set aside in order, in the words of King George V, to perpetuate the memory of that great deliverance, he was speaking about the armistice, and of those who laid down their lives to achieve it. The article continues, why two minutes? Someone suggested that the first minute is for the living, those who came home to build a better world, and one minute of silence is for the dead. To visualize the latter, imagine a column of soldiers, four abreast, formed of British and Commonwealth World War I dead, stretching from London to Durham and taking three days to march past the cenotaph. Sure, for your own countries, you can imagine that in terms of your own dead from the wars. But then multiply that by 10 to visualize a similar column of Russian military dead. Two million in World War I, 10 million in World War II, stretching from Moscow to Irkutsk and taking a month to cross Red Square. Now that we are 75 years on from the end of the Second World War, remembrance has become perhaps less focused but remains just as poignant. We remember men and women from all over the world who have given their lives, who have suffered and continue to suffer because of countless conflicts. This year it is also right to add to that list the women and men who have put themselves in the front line of the global war against COVID. Amnesty reported, and this was on the 3rd of September, that they knew of the deaths of at least 7,000 medical personnel, and those numbers do not include the figures from many countries, including Russia. And it's also right to remember those who have died and suffer as a result of terror. And this Sunday, we continue to remember the recent victims in France and in Austria. We've come to remember and for some of you, it is far more than remembering that there are wars, that there are people who fight and die in wars. For some of you, today is deeply personal. We've come to honour. There's something very special about celebrating Remembrance Sunday in an international context. At times, we will have been enemies. At other times, we will be allies. And what is very good is that we're able to come to honour those who served irrespective of which side they fought on. Again, in his online article, the British Defence Attaché provides a link to a YouTube video in which a German First World War veteran, Stefan Westman, describes with incredible honesty his reaction to killing a French soldier in 1914. And he asks himself this question, how can we have this veneer of civilization yet so quickly become so cold to other human beings? How quickly we can depersonalize them? 
Well, today we rebel against that depersonalization. We honor those who served and those who died as people, as individuals created in the image of God who were personalities, who loved and were loved with their potential glorious eternal destiny. None of them is a statistic. Each of them is a person with a name and an intrinsic dignity. Some will have signed up out of a sense of commitment to the cause. Others out of a sense of duty. Others because they saw no other option and this was a way out. Others because they did not wish to be shamed and many had no option. They were compelled to sign up. And some showed immense courage and willingly chose to sacrifice themselves for their countries, their cause, their comrades, and others who may have had no idea of sacrificing themselves simply ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we honor them because they matter. And we have come to pray for that day when the songs of the ruthless will be silenced. Our reading from Matthew 5 appears hopelessly idealistic. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. And he continues, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wars may be begun by politicians and be fought by generals. But the creator and engine of wars are the people who tell the stories who write the songs, they are us. They are crafted in the pulpits of the age, whether the literal pulpits of the preachers or the pulpits of parliaments, academia or the media, or more importantly today, the personal pulpits of our social media networks. Wars are created by people who tell the stories, stories which define who are the good and the bad, who are the heroes and who are the villains, who are us and who are them, who are the people and who are the non-people. One of our Russian friends was telling us how weary she had become of seeing that in so many Western films, the bad guy inevitably speaks with a strong Slavonic accent. It's also slightly disconcerting to discover British men with accents like me who are often the bad guys in American movies. More seriously, we have a dear friend, an Armenian, who tells with deep passion the story of Nagorno-Karabakh. And we heard from an Azeri a quite different story. Different events are remembered and different events are forgotten and the same events are explained in different ways. My prayer is that we, especially those of us who I trust, are in the business of being peacemakers, who are the go-betweens, who represent our nation to other nations, can commit ourselves to a radical pursuit of truth, to a pursuit of truth with love. And the challenge of these verses for all of us, before we label our enemies bigoted or foolish or evil or even as non-persons, is to put ourselves into their shoes. 
to try as best we can to understand what it is that is really going on. What are the stories or songs that they have heard and are passing on? What are their hopes and fears? We need to pray for a love which is radically honest, first of all, about itself which does not airbrush out the inconvenient facts because they are politically unacceptable and which openly recognizes the good and the bad in us. It's when we're prepared to look at the dark stains on our individual and our own national souls that we begin to realize that perhaps we are not as superior as we would like to pretend to be. And we need to pray for a love which listens to the story of the other, especially if they are our enemy, and with deliberate attentiveness and empathy. Why has that person struck me on the cheek? What is really going on? When Jesus said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile, he is speaking of the practice of the time which permitted a Roman soldier to compel any civilian to carry his baggage for him for a mile on the road. And so Jesus says, do it freely and then go the extra mile. Put yourself literally in that soldier's boots. The peacemakers are the ones who rebel against the stories which we make up about each other, which dehumanize the other. They're the ones who can take this story and that story, your story and my story, and turn it into a third story, our story, which keeps what is unique about you and me, but embraces both you and me. Of course, I am not saying, and Jesus clearly from what he says elsewhere, is not saying that there are never times when force must not be used. There is a love which seeks the true welfare of both victims and oppressors, which means that there will come a time when one who exercises power has to use that power to confront and face down evil, especially when the stories that are told and the songs that are sung strip the other of dignity and honor and turn them into beasts. Stories which lead to subjugation and slavery and genocide. But let's not pretend that the use of force is anything but a very second best. We need our Churchills, but we also need our Chamberlains people who will go to whatever length it is to try and bring peace. And for every Churchill, we need a hundred Chamberlains. Force may be necessary, but it is the second best. It does bad things to the one who uses force. And we are very far then from being perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Perhaps what I am saying is foolishly naive. But then I am a Christian and I have staked my life on a Palestinian Jewish peasant who took into himself all our stories, who died and gave himself in sacrificial love for us, who were his enemies, so that we might become his friends and friends with each other. We believe he rose from the dead and one day he will come and bring his kingdom of joy and justice and mercy and peace.
And I believe in the victory of love and that one day the truth, the full and final story will be revealed which embraces us all and that there will come a day when the song of the ruthless will be stilled.